0: at um, Ralph Wilson Youth Club during the week after school. So talk to Kev about that. So look at uh, Psalms chapter 1. So um, really excited for these next few weeks in Psalms. So Psalms, when you think of Psalms, what do you think of? Just the word Psalms. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Songs? Did you guys say songs? Is that what I heard? I heard murmuring. Songs or... Prayers, maybe. Um, I don't think. I know you guys know this, but uh, music is powerful in our culture today, isn't it? It's always been powerful. When you put words to music, um, there's just something that happens. So, um, how many of you guys have had the experience that Dan talked about a while ago? That um, you're listening to a song and just you're you're moved emotionally. Like there's tears that are coming out of your eyes because of a song, right? You, you get the shivers or the whatever they call it, like the your, um. You get goosebumps, right? Certain songs bring these physical reactions out of us. And here's the funny thing about songs is that there there are some people that you feel like, well, you know, I feel like I'm being manipulated by the song. I feel like I'm I don't want to get you know too caught up in it because I feel like the song is is manipulating me. But here's the reality: is that God created us. God created music to stir our affections for him there is something profound and godly and right when you're singing a song like that last song we just sang and you feel yourself emotionally moved as a result of it that's how god designed worship and music to be that's the effect it should have on us so i know that music dominates many of our lives i want to take a quick survey um out of the main ways of listening to music online, how many of you guys choose Spotify for your musical endeavors? Raise them, raise them high, Spotify people. All right, who's um, listening to Pandora? Ooh, it's like half and half. All right, who's using the newly created Apple Music? Oh, the progressives in the room. Look at those people. Yes. So I saw all three of them. So let us know how that works out for you. Well, we want to hear, since you guys are the the movers and shakers in the room, you know. Um, Am I leading one out? Like, those are the three main ones, right? I know, Am I Amazon Prime, how can I forget Amazon? Who's Amazon Prime? Raise your hand. Oh, there's three of you. Oh, yeah, I put it on her phone, yeah, because she doesn't know how to do stuff like that. Um, I'm a good husband, because I help her with things like that. Then I call her out in front of everybody. Uh, So... So we love our music, and, um, and everyone's trying to compete for ways in which we, we listen to music online and other ways of listening to music. And in fact, this is showing evidence of this, of how powerful music is in our world, is we go to New York City, the last three years now, the last two years, um, I said to my students, where do you guys want to go to church? And they say, where? Hillsong. And um, what's funny about that, we go to Hillsong, and yes, the music is amazing. Um, it is like a full-on rock concert. And, um, they have church in a bar in New York City. It's pretty impressive. It's a nightclub by night. It's a church by sun, on Sunday morning. But they, um, they do this, this full-on, like, awesome concert. But what's funny is that my students are drawn there for the worship. But the last two years now, um, they have made fun of the sermon. My students walk out and they're like, yeah, that sermon. Remember, the title this year, the sermon this year was, All I Do Was Win. That was the sermon title this year at, at, at the Hillsong Church. And my students are making fun of it, but I'm like, but you guys want to keep going back here. And why is that? Because it's the worship. The worship kind of draws them in and draws them back in. So music is powerful. We know this to be true. Something else about music is that music always rises out of life circumstances, doesn't it? So any artist, this is hip-hop, this is rap, this is especially country, rises out of life circumstances, right? Um, Taylor Swift, I know she's not really country anymore, but you know, everything they sing about and talk about usually arises out of something that happened to them, usually something bad that happened to them, and it arises out of these situations. And this is the exact way in which the Psalms are written. Every Psalm that we're going to look at has a story behind it. And has, it's, it's arisen out of some circumstance of life. And we're going to see those play out over this series. So who wrote um, the book of Psalms? Any idea? It's kind of a trick question. So David wrote some of them. Who else wrote some of them? Solomon wrote some. Who else? The Sons of Korah. Sounds like a movie title. Um, Asaph, we have, uh, Moses wrote a few, and there's a bunch that we have no idea who wrote them. So those guys are, um, unfortunate. No one knows their names. But, um, so David wrote many of them, and, uh, these are written over a long period of time, and so some of the barriers of reading the Psalms, whenever I say we're doing a series on the Psalms, I imagine that some of the guys in the room, um, cringe a little bit because, um... The Psalms might be seen as too girly, possibly, or a bit strange, like there's poetic language and hard to understand. But I want to encourage the guys, especially, that David wrote many of the Psalms, um, but David also was a warrior who kicked butt. He really was, all right? So you can take solace knowing that this man, this warrior, is someone who um, also penned these amazingly profound, wonderful pieces that we find in the book of Psalms. So, um, I mean, David had it going on. He was like the football player who also like wrote poetry and like p- played guitar and stuff like that. So um, that's like every woman's dream, right? You know, the guy who's sensitive but also can like kill an intruder, right? And that, what you look for in a man is like that combination, And very few guys have that combination, but David was that combination. So, um, but here's what I want you to get as we step into this book. We're calling this series Honest Worship. And the reason for that is we want you to understand from the Psalms that there's a story behind these Psalms and these songs. But um, what I love about the book of Psalms, it's completely and totally honest worship before God. I think most of us, we think of worship, we think that worship has to look a certain way. Worship has to be this um, get dressed up, come to church, sit in a chair, sit at a table, and raise your hands and pretend like everything's okay. And we have this prettied up vision of what worship is supposed to be. And the Psalms just deconstruct all of that. Because the Psalms are honest. You see David and these other men wrestling With who this God is, arguing, talking to God, and expressing where they are in their life as they um, at the same time worship Him. And so many of you, you think of worship needing to be prettied up or put on this facade, put on this fake face, and pretend like everything's okay. And the Psalms deconstruct all of that, they're honest. And so there's a few things I want you to uh, think about as we go through the series. There's several things I want to see God do in us as we go through this series. Put my next slide up there, and here's what those things are. I want you to think of, uh, no, it's not that one. There we go. So I want to see God do a few things in us as a group throughout this series. And the first thing is this, um, just love and adoration for God. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this because there's so much of what we do as Christians that's just, Yeah, I'm supposed to do this, supposed to do that, read my Bible, pray, go to church, be a part of community, be on mission. And we miss the greater overarching thing, and that's, am I doing this because I love and adore who God is? Is it flowing out of this heart for who God is? Secondly, sorrow over sin. When's the last time you wept over sin? Not just the sin out there, but the sin in here. When's the last time we had sorrow over sin? You see that in especially Psalm 51: brokenness, dependence upon God, understanding fear and trust, walking with God when things seem dark. Is that going to relate to some of you in the room? I think it will. Trusting who God is, worshiping Him honestly in spite of whatever situation you find yourself in, devotion to His Word. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the whole Bible is all about God's word and devotion to his word. So we're going to cover these themes. I want you guys at your tables to discuss questions uh, just one and two. Go ahead and discuss questions one and two. All right, let's look at Psalm chapter 1. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to read. Is that first word blessed or blessed? Is it blessed? Blessed sounds more holy. We'll say blessed. Go to, my next, go to my next slide here. We need some text on the screen. There we go. All right, so verse 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So when we use the word blessed or blessed, no one says blessed. We When we read the Bible we do, but not in real life. So we say blessed. If we use the word blessed, most of us mean that in this way. Good things are happening to me. It's circumstantial. If we say, hey, how are you doing? If someone says, I've just been blessed, well, that usually doesn't mean cancer. It usually doesn't mean bankruptcy. It usually doesn't mean suffering. It usually means, I'm making some decent money right now, or I got a girlfriend, or I got a boyfriend, or just, that's what it normally means if we say the word blessed. But the word being used in this passage means happy. Now, you might think, well, yeah, it, doesn't, it means circumstantial, right? It means happy, like good things are happening to me. But the use of this word is different than that. It's not the same thing as how we use the word blessed. The kind of happiness that we talk about is often one just based on circumstances. The happiness being talked about here is different. It's deeper than that. This is like a joyfulness. This is like this kind of happiness. It's one that is not circumstantial. It's deeper than that. And we're going to see how this unfolds as we look at this passage. I want you to to watch this. It says, this passage says, Happy is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Did you get this? I want you to watch this. Happiness is found for the person who doesn't do these things. Watch this. When most people walk off into the pathway of sin, what is the one thing they're looking for? Happiness. So the thing that most of us are looking for as we walk in the way of the wicked, as we stand in the way of sinners, as we sit in the seat of scoffers, the one thing that most of us are looking for is happiness as we go and do that. And the Bible is saying that happy is the one who doesn't do these things. Happy is the one who avoids the pathway of the sinner or sits in the seat of the scoffers. This is what drives our sin. I would tell you that what drives our sin most frequently is the desire to be happy. If I could just be this, have this, do this, then I will be happy. And many of us, you live this out subconsciously. It's not like you're you're saying that to yourself. It's just you're living it out subconsciously. You're not aware of it all the time. But you're essentially, you're searching for happiness. I read an amazing quote uh, this past week in the study of of this passage. And this quote um, is by Tim Keller. He says, happiness is always a byproduct of seeking something other than happiness itself. Happiness is always a byproduct of seeking something else besides happiness If you took a survey on the street and you asked anybody what is the point of life, many are going to say it's to be happy. I mean, do what you feel called to do. Do what you feel led to do. Um, Whatever you want to do that's going to make you happy, you make sure you go do that. It's how we live our lives. And happiness, this belief that um, I'm entitled to whatever I want in order to be happy, this is how we live our lives. Tim Keller also says... This He says, seek happiness more than righteousness, and you'll get neither. Seek righteousness more than happiness, and you'll get both. When you and I seek happiness, this circumstantial type of happiness, this surface level superficial happiness, and that's all we're after, you're going to miss out on the very thing you're looking for. When you seek after God's kingdom and his righteousness... You get joy, and that joy is not always circumstantial. It, it supersedes circumstances, but you get joy, but you also get to walk with Jesus. You get to walk with God. You get his righteousness applied to you. And if you put that up on a, in front of someone, it's like, why would you say no to that? Chase happiness, get neither Chase righteousness, and you get both, and this is what God wants to offer us, and so I thought of, I debated if I should tell this story or not, because it, um, I don't know, I don't like to be negative, and as I tell these stories, but there's a, um, there's a friend that my wife, she used to work with this girl uh, many, many years ago, and this girl now lives, I think, in the DFW area now, she's way out of, not living here in this area anymore, but We'll run into this girl occasionally here in Temple. She'll come back into town and see some friends. We'll run into at a restaurant or somewhere else, and we'll just and we're friends on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But this is a girl who has um it's very obvious from just social media posts and so on that her number one goal and priority this is a Christian girl, number one goal in, in life is to just find herself a husband. And she's pretty, I mean, she's pretty. And her number one goal, it's like everything about her life just screams, like, I just want to find that man. Like, where is he? And she's had relationship breakup after relationship breakup. We just saw her about a year ago and, and uh, met the guy, the new guy she was engaged to. And we walked away going, man, I, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. And then here on social media this past week, it just blows up. We broke up. Why can't I find a guy? Why can't I trust guys? Oh, my gosh. And it's just, oh, my goodness. Like, this this girl is consumed with this one thing. If I can just find this, I'm going to be happy living for it. And if you make a happy relationship or a happy marriage or a happy boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, the number one thing that you live for, you're never going to have it. If you put happiness before righteousness, you're never going to get either one of those as you live your life. People also point to this in verse 1. They see this progression of it. says walk, stand, and sit. If you walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, we see this progression of walk, stand, and sit. And I think we see in this passage there's three things that the godly person Refuses, And the first thing is the advice of the ungodly. So to walk with the ungodly, is not, this does not mean that you're not friends with people who aren't believers. This does not mean that you don't have friends that you don't hang out with that are... You should have people that you hang out with that are unbelievers. You're living on mission as a Christian. But this metaphor of walk, stand, and sit is meant spiritually. That when you walk with people, this means that you are taking the advice... Of the ungodly, That means if you're a Christian and your boyfriend breaks up with you, that if you go to your unbelieving friend for advice on how you should handle that or any other situation you find yourself in, you are taking advice from someone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ and is going to be limited in how to handle it if you call yourself a Christian. The second thing this verse says is do not stand in the path of sinners. Now we have standing. So this means no longer just walking with them, but you are now standing. You are in agreement. You are starting to buy in to their way of living and lifestyle. Stand in the pathway. Of, and then thirdly, sit in the seat of scoffers. This is someone who's got full buy-in. They have fully bought into a sinful way of thinking and living out their life. You are sitting in the seat along with those who scoff at truth. Again, this does not mean that you're not friends with people who are living this way. It means that you don't buy in. It means you don't have partnership with them. This does not mean we don't live on mission. There's a difference between friendship so I can introduce them to Jesus and friendship so I can live how they live. There's a difference there friendship so I can introduce them to Jesus or is it friendship so I can live how they live and so I know one word that stands out to me is the word scoffer we don't use that um, word a whole lot in our culture you don't ever call someone a scoffer do you like that guy's a scoffer what is that what does that mean but I love this 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 uh verse in Proverbs nineteen twenty five. one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because it's awesome it says strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge What it's saying is that someone who's a scoffer someone is that is so rebellious against God and his word and is so hardened against truth someone who's just totally scoffing at everything that you and I would say that we believe and stand for that kind of person you can punch that person in the face and someone else will learn from it. You catch that? You can punch this person in the face, and somebody else will learn a lesson. So it's saying that the guy who got punched in the face didn't learn anything from it. Because he's so hardened to truth. In fact, there was a guy I went to high school with. His name was Ricky Cruz. And Ricky was this, um, I mean, he was a, I didn't see him as a scoffer, but he was a guy that was kind of a punk Right, and one time I had sprained my ankle in uh, I think in, in in gym class or whatever. And I sprained my ankle. I was on crutches for like a week, had a sprained ankle, and so I'm waiting out on the curb, waiting for my ride to come pick me up. And Ricky just walks up while I'm on crutches and just pushes me in the chest, and I fall backwards with my crutches. Who does that, right? And so um, I was so angry, so I. I um, actually tried to run him down while I'm on crutches, and of course he was faster than me because like, he was not on crutches, and, uh, and I, I sort of like waited a few minutes, and I walked over without him knowing I was behind him, and he's now waiting for his ride to come pick him up, and I have my crutches, and I go, hey, Ricky, and I go, bam, right in the side of the head. This actually happened. I'm not joking. This actually happened, and, uh, and I walked away. And he's like, you know, like holding his eye, and like, what? I'm like, dude, you push me, man. What's the deal? And so this guy, he's he's kind of like this. You can you can punch someone like that in the face, and they won't learn a thing, but the guy next to them will. The guy next to them will, and this is what this verse is saying. This person is a scoffer, just so hardened because of um they they don't understand who God is, and so um, this kind of person. As you look at Scripture, you see in other parts of Proverbs, you see this person has no respect for parents. They won't listen to teaching. They won't listen to authority. They reject all categories of right and wrong. Um, you can give them a beating, and they still won't learn from it. Not suggesting at all that you guys should be doing what I did when I was in school. I was an idiot. So learn from me um, what not to do. But, you know, when I when I hear about this, this person, the this scoffer, This is why I love high school ministry so much. If someone said, you know, why do you like doing high school? I would say because um, you have the greatest chance of ministering and witnessing to someone who's like a scoffer. Or someone else who's on the list up there. Because, let's be honest, in the rest of the church, um, so infants come here because they have to. Toddlers come here because... Um, Their parents bring them here, and they like goldfish crackers in our children's ministry, so they want to be here. Most elementary kids, they, they like coming to church. It's fun. You know, we have, we have a lot of fun with them. Junior high, you might have some people that are skeptical, starting to get skeptical about their faith, but then when you get to high school, this is the age where um, your parents might still make you come even though you don't want to be here, and I actually love that. Because it's our chance to put before you the gospel and put before you God's word weekly. And I know that for some of you inside, you're just, you're churning, you're just, I don't believe this. And it's our chance as, as your pastors and your leaders to put before you who Jesus is and who God is and what his word says. And you might be in this place of being a scoffer. You might be in the categories of the things I just described from Psalms chapter 1. And I love that because it's our chance to minister to you. And I actually prefer, because once you get to college, most of the time when you get to college, you make your own choices. If you don't want to be here, then you're not going to come here. But it's our chance to minister to many of you that find yourself in this kind of situation. And I love that about um, high school ministry that doesn't happen anywhere else in the church. Nowhere else in the church do we, do we find it, I think, like we, like we find it in high school ministry. Look back at Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it again. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Whenever we say the phrase, he, he, his delight is in the law of the Lord, And on his law, he meditates day and night. I love verse 2 because you and I would never put those words together. Delight in God's law. We think of God's law, we think of rules. Delighting in rules, like who delights in rules? No one delights in rules. If you do, you're just strange. But this is not rules being talked about in this passage. This is all of God's word. This is referring to all of God's word. And this is pointing to the whole thing. So this person delights in God's word. It's not someone who just loves rules. It's to delight in God's word, to delight in who God is. And whenever you and I hear the word meditate, we think of strange things, right? We think of someone, Eastern meditation. But meditation is actually a biblical concept. And what it is, it's like to read something and to just churn it over and over and over. The, the word in the Hebrew is actually a murmuring or a muttering, almost like you're repeating it to yourself just over and over and over again. Some people have said that meditation is like digest, like they, they would say that digestion of food is like meditation for the soul. So when you and I eat something, We're actually taking it in, even if it's a Twinkie, right? You're taking it into your body. It is going and permeating your entire being into your cells. That's digestion. Meditation is like a spiritual form of digestion. You are taking God's word in, it is becoming a part of who you are, it is sinking into your heart and your soul, and it's becoming a part of you. In fact, I have to admit, during the summertime, Summertime is a really difficult time for me, I think spiritually, because I'm just sort of out of my groove or out of my element or planning lots of stuff. And I told my wife, I said, you know, I feel like for a lot of our students, you guys do impact, you guys do mission trips, and for you guys, it's spiritually speaking, summertime is like a big high for many of you. But for me, very often, it's a spiritual low point because I'm just not in my normal routine and it's, and it's my fault. Not saying it's anyone else, anyone's fault but my own, but recently, and I'll just find I'll find myself in this weird place of not really having passion and ha- not having love and adoration for God. And about a week ago, I'm reading Luke chapter seven, and it's a story of this woman who is a prostitute, and Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, and this woman walks in and she starts putting ointment on Christ's feet, weeping with tears and and, and drenching his feet in tears and wiping his feet wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus tells the Pharisee, he basically says, you know why she's doing this? Because she's been forgiven much. And then he turns to the Pharisee and he says, you know, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't treat me the way that she's treating me. And he says, because he who's been forgiven little, loves little. And I walked away from that passage and I was going, you know, just meditating on that, thinking about it all day and just just thinking about it and preaching that to myself, reminding myself that when I lack love and passion for Jesus Christ, it's because I don't view my sin properly. I think I've been forgiven little, like the Pharisee. I think I've been, yeah, yeah, God kind of, you know, yeah, I I believe a lot of stuff, but I'm just lacking passion and zeal right now. Well, that goes back to how I view my sin. The person who forgives, who's been forgiven, you realize how much you've been forgiven. Loving him and adoring him won't be an issue because you see your sin correctly. And it was convicting to me. And so this is the way in which meditation and chewing on something all day can begin to permeate um, your entire being as you meditate on those things. Look at verse 3. It says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He's saying this person is like a tree planted by streams of water. I want you to picture a desert and a tree, its roots going deep into the water. And this is a picture he's creating for us. And there's three things this image shows us. And the first one is this, is that spiritual life, go to my next slide. Spiritual life is fed from an outside source. You will never find all the things inside of yourself necessary to live a walk with Christ. You've got to be tapped into the living water who is Jesus Christ. You will find it only from an outside source and it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, spiritual fruit can be seasonal. This means you go through times of dryness and drought and it can be times of um, there's, there's less fruit in different seasons of life. And then thirdly, Internal life is more important than externals. The picture here is of the roots. Roots are not glamorous. You would never go buy your girlfriend a bouquet of roots. They're not beautiful. But they're necessary for survival. And so internal life, what's under the ground, is more significant than what's on the external. We spend our lives trying to rearrange the leaves, rearrange the branches, treat the outside, put on the facade, but when you look at this picture, the internal life is much more important and significant than the external life. The root system, healthy roots leads to healthy fruit. And I think what we see in this passage is there's an epidemic of sallowness among Christians, I think, when we look around us, myself included. Um, the picture being painted here is, is a person who is deeply rooted in Christ, meditates on God, chews on his word. Look at verse 4. We've got to hurry up. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When you think of the word wicked, most of us just think of someone besides ourselves. But when it says wicked, it's not referring to the most evil murderer or thief you can think of. It's referring to anyone who's not connected to, to God, anyone who's apart from God. This is anyone not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That, that would be considered wicked. And this is you and I before we came to know Christ. We're in this category of wicked. And so back then they would separate um, chaff, the little outside um, things on the outside of the wheat shell, they would they would separate those and just blow them, and and the wind would take those things away, so they could have their wheat, their grain. So we do watch this. He compares the righteous to a tree who is firmly planted in the ground to the wicked who is just like dust. And you see there just a life of shallowness versus a life of depth. We've got to finish up here. So let me finish very quickly. You guys can discuss some more here at your tables. I want you to think of um, there's a few application points for you. I don't want you to think of this passage as just being about behavior. It's not just about, okay, I do this, then things will work out well. I do that, things will go badly for me. I don't want you to miss Jesus in this passage. And here's where I think you find Jesus in the passage we see a tree planted in water. Jesus Christ calls himself living water. We read about delighting in the law. This is referring to all of God's Word. All of God's Word points to Jesus. John 1 says that Jesus, the Word, became flesh. Word is not just a, something on a piece of paper, it is Jesus Christ Himself. It is the Word incarnate, Word in the flesh. Jesus Christ. This passage also tells us that we're not supposed to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But the reality is, we've all failed at that. We've all done that. But there's one person who never did. There's one person who never did any of that. And it's only through faith in him, the one who never did those things, that you and I can begin to walk in righteousness towards him only through his power. And the men who sat on the judgment seat and sent Jesus Christ to the cross, those were scoffers. They sat in the scoffer's seat and sent Jesus, the one who never sat in that seat, to the cross to die, for those of us who have sat in that same seat. And this is how we find our, um, ourselves, we, we, we find Jesus Christ in this passage. And so, um, with that, I want you to go ahead and discuss at your tables. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions. And, uh, and we'll go watch baptism in a few minutes. Go ahead and discuss.